Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. The races for senator and governor in Florida were both decided by less than half a percent. That is why there is a legally mandated recount. Will this recount change anything? Tonight from Broward County, Florida, this is the home stretch and the epicenter of what's shaping up to be a historic recount. It's taking place right behind me. We're looking at the Florida governor and Senate races, a double recount. In the fight for governor, Republican Ron DeSantis has a narrow lead over Democrat Andrew Gillum. And in the Senate race, Republican Rick Scott is barely leading Democrat Bill Nelson. President Trump tweeted about the races, saying they should be called in favor of Scott and DeSantis claiming new ballots showed up out of nowhere and that many ballots are missing or forged. Election night was more than a week ago, and yet in Florida, many results are still outstanding. Margins in several races are too tight for the state to certify a winner. So close, in fact, that recounts are underway. I was in the Broward County Election Office on Monday, and it's in the back of this nondescript strip mall where there's all these canopies set up for protesters and TV crews. And there there are like three layers of security that you have to go through to get into the building to watch. Washington Post national political reporter Amy Gardner called us from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. In her time at the Broward County's election office earlier this week, she watched live as Florida's ballots were recounted. There's like sheriff's deputies on the outside, and then you get in and you have to sign in. And then after you sign in, you have to go through a magnetometer. And then you go into this room, and it's really crowded with seats for the monitors and press. And then um, on one wall is a wall of windows. And you look in there as if you're looking into, like, Lucy and Ethel in the candy factory. If one piece of candy gets past you and into the packing room unwrapped, you're fired. And, um... There are these giant machines, and you see workers, like, putting stacks of ballots into the machines. I saw this fascinating sort of paint-drying moment where a man came out of the counting room with a stack of ballots and a plastic bin, like the kind of bin that you store your Christmas ornaments in in your attic. And he walks up to them, and he says, we have certified the two new machines that we've added to expedite the counting. We've done our logistics and accuracy test on these two new machines and here are the results. They passed the test. We're ready to get going using the machines to sort and to count. And then he put those ballots that were used, just fake sample ballots, to test those two machines into that bin. And then he seals the bin with tape and then he writes a number on it or has a sticker with a number on it and puts that on the bin and he reads the number out to the canvassing board so that it's all this public process to certify that these records will be kept and stored and, uh, you know, untouched by partisan hands. It was pretty amazing. At this point, several races in Florida are at different points in the recount process. But two races in particular have been getting a lot of attention. 
First, there's the U.S. Senate race between the incumbent Democratic Senator Bill Nelson and Republican Governor Rick Scott. After a machine recount there, that race is still close enough that it's now moving to a manual recount. Second, a contentious governor's race between Democrat Andrew Gillum, the mayor of Tallahassee, and Republican Ron DeSantis, a former congressman. Now, a machine recount in that race did not trigger an additional manual recount. But as of Thursday, Gillum said he's not planning to concede. In support of these recounts, Democrats have adopted a message that every vote must be counted. But the Democratic candidates are also the ones who held lower totals in both of these races before the recounts started. Republicans, including the president himself, have claimed, without evidence, broad voter fraud carried out by Democrats. Trump has also suggested that certain counties are finding votes to support the Democrats in the recount. He's tweeted that the elections should be called in favor of the Republicans, that ballots are missing or forged, and that an honest vote count is not possible. That's quite a bit of rhetoric attacking our election process from the leader of our country. But is it unprecedented? And how much power does a president have over the outcome of election recounts? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Amy Gardner, via phone call from Florida, recounted, if you will, what it was like in the Sunshine State on election night. Well, it was interesting, as it always is in Florida. First thing that happened that was super interesting was that these races were really, really close. They had been tagged as close. They were within the margin of error in the final polling. But in both cases, the Democrat was up in the polls. Nelson's real clear politics average was like 2.4%. Gillum's was plus 3.6 percentage points. So, you know, I remember thinking as I watched returns that night, oh, okay. So, yeah, that's right. Florida's a swing state. No blue waves are coming here. And, you know, that was sort of the general feel in the first hours of the evening. And then as the night went on, did things change? Well, what happened was before eight o'clock, so really early in the in an evening that was a long one for many of us, Andrew Gillum conceded. It was interesting, too, because a lot of the energy in Florida had been around the Gillum campaign. Millions upon millions of dollars had been spent in both races, the Senate race and the governor's race. But Gillum is this dynamic, young, African-American mayor of Tallahassee. A lot of outside money came in and lots of excitement about whether the youth vote was going to be surging in Florida and what that meant for Gillum. A lot less talk about what that meant for Nelson, an older incumbent, not as dynamic a candidate as Gillum. But Gillum's race was not as tight. His margin of defeat was wider, and he conceded before 8 o'clock in the evening, whereas the Senate race remained close and nobody knew what was going to happen. So then what changed? What took Gillum's concession out of the picture? What happened? So the evening ended with both Rick Scott and Ron DeSantis, the two Republicans, with large enough margins, about a percentage point, to look like they were going to win. The newspapers across the country declared DeSantis the winner, and they said that Scott declared victory, but that Nelson wasn't conceding yet. So it looked, when we went to bed, that maybe this thing was over. 
that the that the Democrats had had a bad night in Florida. The Republicans had had a good night. So that's how the night ended. But then over the next day and then second day, those margins started to shrink. And the reason those margins started to shrink is that larger counties, particularly Broward County, where I am right now in Fort Lauderdale, and Palm Beach County to my south and Miami-Dade County south of that, were still counting their ballots. They were counting their absentee or mail-in ballots and provisional ballots. And so the numbers were changing. And those counties are so big that those numbers were having a measurable impact on the margin. And the margin of victory for both Scott and DeSantis started to shrink. So let's talk about what triggers an automatic recount and how automatic it actually is. What does the margin have to be in order to trigger a recount? So in Florida, if the margin of victory is less than a half of a percentage point, that triggers an automatic machine recount. If the margin is under a quarter of a percentage point, 0.25, that triggers a manual recount. And so by Thursday, both races were under a half of a percentage point. And in fact, Scott's was under a quarter of a percentage point. That's when Andrew Gillum unconceded and said, hey, we need to make sure every vote counts. And that happened. And then by Saturday, the Secretary of State, Ken Dedsner, ordered a machine recount in both races because they were both beneath 0.5%. And the way the state law works is that you first do a machine recount. And then when the results of the machine recount come in, if any of the races machine recounted are under that quarter percentage point threshold, then he orders a manual recount. So hand counting, what's the benefit of hand counting versus machine counting? Why is that sort of the final step? So when they order a hand recount, they don't recount every single ballot. There are 8 million ballots cast this year in Florida. It's a lot of ballots. What they do is they count only the what's known as the overvotes and the undervotes. And I'll explain what that is. So if if I fill out Rick Scott on my ballot, but then I'm like, oh, shoot, no, I meant to vote for Bill Nelson. I put an X through Rick Scott, and then I fill in the bubble for Bill Nelson. And the machine tags my ballot as an overvote. It means that I voted for more than one ca- uh, candidate in a race. And it's not counted. It is set aside. And if I undervote, it means I didn't vote at all in a race, and my ballot is flagged for that purpose. And the reason for this is that if the overvote and undervote ballots are numerous enough to potentially sway an election, they need to be examined to see the intent of the voter. So what you'll see in the hand recount is the canvassing boards in each county studying these paper ballots to say, oh, no, look, this one's definitely for Nelson because there's an X through Scott, and then they filled out the Nelson bubble. Or, no, this one's not clear. Or we disagree because there are Republicans and Democrats monitoring these um, these proceedings, so there's going to be all kinds of objections. No, that one's for Nelson. No, that one's for Scott. And then the undervote is the same thing. Like, there'll be, uh, there might actually be an X through one of the bubbles that wasn't detected by the machine, and so everyone will agree, yeah, that one's for Scott or everyone will disagree. So that's what gets recounted in the manual recount and could have a, you know, a measurable difference in these very, very close races. Right now, 
How many races are affected by this recount? There's also another statewide race for Agriculture Commission that's actually even closer than the two top ticket races. Um, In the Agriculture Commissioner race, the margin is only 5,340 votes right now, which is kind of amazing. There's a scattering of state legislative races that are also being recounted. One of them is a state house race in Palm Beach County here in South Florida, where the margin is only 37 votes. Mm -hmm. So so that's sort of interesting. So then to me, recount in Florida ever since I've sort of been aware of politics, has been synonymous. There are constantly recounts in Florida, in, from my perception. Is that true? And if so, why are there so many frequently in Florida? It's a swing state. I mean, it is quintessentially a swing state. It's the largest swing state in America, and that means that it's really evenly divided. We've done a lot of stories about the demographic makeup of Florida And people talk about blue waves coming across the country in states like Georgia and Virginia and maybe even Texas, where uh, suburban, educated, affluent professionals are moving in and changing the political dynamics. But in Florida, there's change on both sides of the political spectrum. There's an influx of Latino voters, a lot from Puerto Rico, but at the same time, There is an influx of older white Americans, retirees who come to Florida, and those two kind of equal and opposite demographic forces keep this state really close. So then when will we know the results of these elections? When will the election results be certified? So the deadline for certification is November 20th, which is Tuesday, but that could change if a judge orders it to change. There have been several judicial cases where judges are ordering certain things to happen that could force those deadlines back. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Let's move on to the politics of all of this. Why are Democrats seemingly so interested in seeing these recounts through? Well, the largest counties where the largest number of ballots were in the balance, either set aside or rejected for something wrong with the mail-in ballot, like a signature mismatch. These are predominantly Democratic strongholds, Broward, Palm Beach, Miami-Dade. And generally speaking, the Democrats pursue a strategy that the more voters who participate, the better their Outcomes. If you get more voters to participate at the polls, they're more likely to be Democratic because, particularly in midterm elections, more Democrats tend to stay home than Republicans. So that's the reason why Democrats typically push in court and at these canvassing meetings for every vote to count. And why are Republicans seemingly so against this recount? Is it just the inverse or are there other reasons? I mean, they will tell you that there is rampant voter fraud and that the Democrats are trying to count illegal and uh, not eligible ballots, 
and that they believe in the rule of law and that the a lot of these ballots shouldn't count because they're they're not legal ballots. However, there is not evidence in our country anywhere of rampant voter fraud. And so there's certainly been much conjecture on the part, not only of Democrats, but also civil rights advocates and lawyers, that Republicans are, as you say, uh, following the sort of converse strategy of the Democrats, which is the fewer votes we allow in, the better our chances. But what are the risks of these approaches really from both political parties? Could the discourse around the integrity of elections in our country affect the way voters perceive their democratic opportunities? Is it harmful? I mean, the rhetoric is so dramatic and accusatory where Republicans are accusing Bill Nelson of voter fraud and the Democratic Party, all the way up to Donald Trump, the president. And the electorate is so divided. I mean, Spending time at the Broward County Election Office this week, I've been struck by how angry the protesters are on both sides, with supporters of Rick Scott just shouting at the supporters of Bill Nelson and the supporters of Bill Nelson doing the same thing. It certainly makes sense to conjecture that this is bad for our democracy, but it's worth noting that our own polling actually shows that faith in the American electoral system is pretty high. So whether this is actually harming the integrity of our elections, I don't think we have enough evidence to really state definitively. And it's also worth noting that turnout this year in a midterm election cycle was historic. And people vote when they believe in the election system. So that's a good sign. Can you elaborate on some of the the public statements the president has been making about this recount? What's he said? So it started like Wednesday, Thursday after the election last week when he started tweeting about how the Democrats were trying to steal this election. And as those margins that we discussed got narrower as the ballots, the final ballots were being counted in Broward and elsewhere, he actually said in one of his tweets, huh, ballots found for Democrats. I wonder how come that happened. Or, you know, and it was extremely sort of uh, inflammatory. And the fact is that ballots weren't found for Democrats. The election officials were completing their count, and they were counting ballots for both Republicans and Democrats. It's just that because these are Democratic counties, they were counting more Democratic ballots than Republican ballots. To be clear, can a president, beyond his rhetoric, play a role in a recount? Can they have any direct power over what happens in a recount process? He doesn't have any direct power over it. He has indirect power and in a couple of ways. He certainly has set the tone, and it's clear that others in his party, including Governor Scott, are following his lead in accusing the Democrats of fraud. And even the Secretary of State announced an investigation yesterday of some activities by the Democratic Party here that seem to be something that resulted from some of the rhetoric that we're hearing from President Trump and from Governor Scott. He also has called for the firing of the supervisor of elections here in Broward County, a woman named Brenda Snipes, which is a power that Governor Scott holds as governor. He can remove her if he chooses to do so. He also appoints our federal judiciary, and there are several cases wending their way through the courts right now that could determine the outcome of this race. Actually, the judge who is overseeing most of these cases is a appointee of Obama, and that's actually attracting a lot of criticism out in the out in the Twitter world too. So there's an indirect way that he has power over the elections here, but not a direct way. 
And why does he care so much about the elections there? Why is this so important to him or seems so given his tweets? I mean, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think they want to keep the Republican majority in the Senate as big as it can be. And one less seat means that much less of a decisive margin in the Senate. I also think that Florida is going to be a critical battleground in 2020 when we all assume President Trump will run for re-election. And I think he knows that too. And so setting the stage for 2020 by criticizing Democrats and accusing Democrats of fraud could be a sort of dry run or dress rehearsal for what we're going to hear two years from now. So then when this recount is wrapped up, regardless of who wins these offices, given all of the rhetoric from Democrats, from Republicans, kind of how heated it's gotten, who will kind of emerge as the real winners, at least of messaging or and the, and the losers for that matter? Like who serves to gain something here? That's a really tough. That's a really tough one. I mean, it sounds like the Republicans are winning the rhetoric wars because they're a little louder The Democrats will tell you that they think that the volume of the Republicans is actually a sign of the weakness of their arguments. And I think that the other battleground where this whole episode gets won or lost is not in the rhetoric, but actually in the courtrooms. And so if judges hand down rulings over the next couple of days that prescribe how these laws are affected and how ballots are counted and how signatures are matched in ways that allow more voters in, that's a win for the Democrats. And if if the judges rule in the opposite direction, that's a win for the Republicans. So I think the judicial rulings are another place where we have to watch to determine the winners and losers in the longer run here. Thanks so much for listening to Can He Do That? If you would, let's say, place a vote for this podcast, if you get where I'm going with this, then please let other people know about it. Share it wherever you share things, whether that's social media, in email, or by word of mouth with a friend or family member. We appreciate it. Keep on listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the incredibly hardworking Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Mm -hmm. 